Thanks for listening to The Rest is Politics. Sign up to The Rest is Politics Plus to enjoy ad-free listening, receive a weekly newsletter, join our members' chat room and gain early access to live show tickets. Just go to therestispolitics.com. That's therestispolitics.com. The 2024 Subaru Outback Wilderness is built to take you further off the beaten path. It has 9.5 inches of ground clearance paired with standard symmetrical all-wheel drive, plus off-road wheels, rugged all-terrain tires, and advanced dual-function X-Mode to help get you through deep snow, gravel, and mud. The 2024 Subaru Outback Wilderness. Adventure elevated. To explore all you can do with the rugged Subaru Wilderness family of vehicles, visit Subaru.com slash wilderness. Whether you're making a delicious family meal or a post-workout snack, choose the farm-fresh taste of Eggland's Best Eggs. Only Eggland's best hens are fed their proprietary all-vegetarian feed. That's what makes their eggs more nutritious. With 10 times more vitamin E, 25% less saturated fat, and 6 times more vitamin D compared to ordinary eggs. Eggland's Best. Better taste, better nutrition, better eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com to learn more. Right, well, welcome to another special episode of The Rest is Politics with me, Alistair Campbell, and me, Alistair Campbell, because Rory, I've told him he's got to have his holiday, he's been flying around too much, he's got a few days with his kids and his wife in Kenya, Um, so he's going to miss out on one of my favourite people in politics around the world, and one of my daughter's favourite people, because she's a feminist icon, I think it's fair to say. Uh, so a special welcome to the former Prime Minister of Australia, Julia Gillard. Well, it's great great to be with you, but I just want to declare at the start, I am no substitute for Rory. My idea of going for a walk is a gentle stroll by a river, not hiking across <laughs> Afghanistan. So, no, I am no substitute. You are a great walker, though, aren't you? I know that. you That's your kind of way of relaxation is to go for long walks. I am a great walker, but nowhere near Rory's elite standards. <laughs> No, I think I think if Rory could maybe think about walking across Australia, then we could we really could put him in the elite standards. Now, listen, Julia, thanks for thanks for talking to me, and I, I want to start with two things that are both related to your experience, but also topical. You became prime minister in 2010, and although Australia wasn't maybe hit as hard by the global financial crisis as other parts of the world, that did to some extent define what you had to deal with. So I just wonder what you learned from that that maybe you could pass on to current presidents and prime ministers with the financial upheaval that we're going through. I think today, the day we're talking, uh, Jim Chalmers, the Australian treasurer, is setting out his budget. What can leaders today learn from the lessons of the global financial crisis, do you think? I think actually leaders today have got it tougher in many ways because one of the hallmarks of the global response to the financial crisis was coordination. Uh, Through the G20 in particular, uh, there was coordination of fiscal and monetary policies. Uh, Gordon Brown was central to that response, as was my predecessor, Kevin Rudd. And that meant because the geopolitics was enabling that degree of cooperation that things Things were a little bit easier then than they are now. But I think some of the lessons from that time would be to the extent you can skate through the geopolitics and still find ways of reaching out to leaders from other countries, do so because coordination does matter. Uh, Second, don't get blinded by the immediate crisis to what you want to do in the longer term, try and calibrate the short and longer term policy responses. And to give one example of that from Australia, I was Minister for Education and Deputy Prime Minister before I was Prime Minister. We knew we needed a very big stimulus response to deal with the global financial crisis, but we decided that a big component of that stimulus would be renovating and building new school buildings because one of our long-term policy objectives was better education for every child. So you Mm. can bring the short term and the long term into alignment and try and look for those. It's interesting you you specifically mentioned Gordon Brown there, and I know Barack Obama talked about Gordon's role. And of course, Gordon partly lost power because the Conservatives politically were successful in pinning the crash on Labour. And of course, Labour has not been in power 
since then. And yet you, and I think other world leaders around at the time, saw Gordon's role in that as being absolutely pivotal in, in frankly, doing a lot to save the world economy. Yeah, it is very hard to explain to the electorate just how global some of these phenomena are. I mean, we used to use terminology back then about, you know, we're not immune. Australia comes to this crisis with inherent strengths, but we're not immune. The tide of the global economy doesn't stop at our shoreline, things like that. But the truth is people don't experience their lives in comparison to how someone's doing in, you know, somewhere in Europe or in America, people define their own life experience based on how they used to feel. And if they think the past was better than their contemporary reality, then I think there is Mm. the capacity for people to lash out against governments just because times are tough and they're feeling that the times are tough on their shoulders. Uh, So if that analysis is right, uh, then I think this will be a very difficult season for incumbents around the world. Mm. And we might have another data point on all of that very shortly uh, once we see the midterm results in the US. And your point about why it's maybe harder to do international cooperation now Is that because the multilateral institutions are being broken down in part by the deliberate breaking down of their power and authority by the Chinese, by the Russians, the dictatorships kind of feeling that they they have got the upper hand at the moment? I think that is certainly a very strong element of it. So China uh, lent in to the global financial crisis and worked, particularly through the G20, uh, to help alleviate pressures in the global economy. I mean, their analysis was bad global economy is bad for China and they reacted in that way. Uh, Now, of course, the dynamic is quite different. Uh, then I'd also say whilst the, the changing geopolitics around China and Russia is, you know, a huge element of what we're discussing now, I actually think the ability of Western democracies to manoeuvre and to strengthen international bonds is less than it used to be. Mm. I think people have got uh, more and more intolerant of globalisation, internationalisation. They are much more wanting to see their national leaders focus on the home front. That is feeding into populist movements in many parts of the world. And so for a leader, and I genuinely believe the new Prime Minister here in the UK, Prime Minister Sunak, is this kind of leader who understands the global economy, understands the interconnections, uh, wants to work with others around the world. The task of explaining all of that to the domestic electorate is much harder than it used Mm, to be. mm. And even harder in Australia because you have these, to my mind, ridiculously short parliamentary terms of three years. That is, I don't know how you do the long-term stuff when you've got that. Can that not be changed? We do have very, very short parliamentary terms, though. There may be some people in the UK who in recent months have been thinking to themselves <laughs> that five years might be a tad too long. Uh, so careful, uh, careful what you wish for in some ways. Uh, the constraint in Australia is really working through what you would do with the Senate, uh, just because our system is routinely half the Senate goes to election at each general election. And if you move to four-year terms, that would create eight-year terms for senators, and I think people would react adversely to that. Then you could say, well, why don't we have uh, a full election for the Senate every time? The problem with that is it brings the quota to get elected down and helps minor political parties, I mean, really minor political parties, very niche political parties, to uh, prosper, and that can give you very unworkable senates. Mm. Okay. Now, you mentioned Rishi Sunak there, and the, and the second situation that's happening today that I think you can maybe lend some of your experience to, you came into power as Prime Minister uh, after a pretty turbulent period in Labour's history. You mentioned Kevin Rudd, the kind of your, you and his relationship. Uh, we've talked before about The Killing Season, this extraordinary documentary series, which you've never watched, I believe. No, I never no. have. I think uh, from <laughs> seeing the title and the promos, I concluded it had missed the point, and I'm happy to yeah. well, drill down into that. For, tho- for those who haven't seen it and who want to see a sense of pretty brutal politics, then it's definitely worth seeing. But Rishi Sunak comes in, as you did, 
with a, his party pretty divided, with some really difficult challenges to face. So, you know, you've already said that he maybe understands the modern world, but what can you say to somebody who comes in like you, unopposed in terms of the leadership election, and then inherits some pretty big challenges. So, uh, you know, I'm assuming like me, you're still Labour and you're hoping that maybe Keir Starmer will come along. But what advice, Prime Minister to Prime Minister, can you give to Sunak? Certainly, if I was a citizen of this country at the next election, I'd be voting Labor, and I wish Keir Starmer and the team uh, all all the best wishes in the world. I hope that there's uh, plenty of opportunity for them at the next election, and that they get to form a majority Labor government. But for the incoming Prime Minister now, I don't know if he needs or wants my advice, but let's just venture my arm by saying the following: I think. The natural instinct will be, given the dimensions of the challenges, to really come roaring out of the gate with many policies and announcements and all the rest of it. I'm not sure that's the right response because I think most people in the UK are exhausted at this point and their dearest wish would be that politics gets out of their face for a while. Mm. So I would try and, you know, not slow it down because he can't afford to go at a glacial pace uh, because the dimensions of the challenges are big and he's only got so much time left in this parliamentary term. But I would step it out very methodically, very slowly, or as slowly as he possibly can. I think there's a market right now for pretty boring in politics. Boring would seem safe, easy compared with what everybody's lived through. Mm. And it's interesting how one of the things that the Keir Starmer's op- opponents run at him is that he's a bit boring. So maybe that's a maybe, maybe that's a strength. I don't think he is boring, but it's something that people say. But it, do you think Labour will win the next? Well, you spend a lot of time in the UK. Do you th- do you feel that Labour? Because it's still a huge, huge swing that's required. It is a huge swing that's required. I mean, I've never worried about the critique around uh, Keir Starmer that he's boring. I mean, um, you know, at the end of the day, being Prime Minister isn't being a clown or an entertainer. It's a serious job. Uh, And maybe people after the recent experience in the UK will be thinking that to themselves very Mm. strongly, uh, that that what they want is someone who's not full of razzle-dazzle, but full of... Uh, method and purpose and slow deliberation. And I think Keir and the team, in the way that they're preparing now for the next election, are showing that. I mean, I don't know the inside story. I'm just looking at the media, but they seem to be taking a very uh, methodical approach to getting ready to be a party of government again. Mm. So that's all to their credit. You know, on the next contest, In some ways, you know, if you were calling it now, looking at the polls, you'd say, well, you know, Labor's uh, got a very good chance of forming majority government. But as you and I know from our past lives, things can change and change quickly. uh, Mm. And we don't know yet how the new Prime Minister is going to land with the British electorate. We don't know how he's going to perform. We don't know whether or not the Tories can you know, say, do what they've said in the last 24 hours, which is unite and actually shrug off the divisions that have been so deep during this period. So I think we need to see all of that before we can make a really robust yeah. prediction about the next election. What, what do you think, the, let's just start with Australia, what in general has Australia made of our politics in recent years? Because it, it must have come over to you as, you know, pr- I guess from Brexit through Cameron, then May, then Johnson, then Trust, now Sunak. I mean, it's what have the Aussies made of us? <laughs> well, I mean, you know, most most people in Australia obviously don't think about British politics. I mean, they hardly think about Australian <laughs> politics, so uh, they wouldn't be looking at British politics. Uh, I think Johnson, though, was the kind of figure that um, people were more likely to look at just because he was sort of interesting and different in the same way that obviously President Trump uh, commanded such global attention and, and certainly commanded attention in Australia. On the 
rapid changes of Prime Minister, I think people would say, well, we've been through that ourselves, so they wouldn't necessarily mm. uh, be judging the UK down on that. I think once you get beyond that, though, when you're talking about the politically active class and the politically analytical class, you would see some echoes in UK politics of our own politics. I mean, I'm of that generation of Labor politicians that, you know, the media was endlessly wittering on, wittering on about Labor's problems with its dual constituencies, that it was trying to uh, serve the traditional working class as well as inner city elites and how does this all add up. And what the media missed in all of that wittering on uh, was that the Conservatives were definitely trying to serve two constituencies too, mm. uh, wealthy, educated, globalised people uh, and uh, quite quite conservative, middle class, lower middle class, um, even uh, working class supporters with very conservative family values uh, and very conservative values around things like immigration. And I think that division in Australia came home to roost in the last election when our Conservative Party lost some of its heartland seats to pro-climate change women who were still running on conservative economic platforms. The tools. Teals, the, yeah. Yeah, the teals, the, the colour of their banner was teal. Uh, so, you know, combining uh, red and blue uh, and getting and getting teal, you know, and pro-climate action, they've sort of eaten out the heartland seats of the Conservative Party. And I think, you know, Johnson's victory and taking of the red wall for a while obscured here in the UK just how diverse the Tory constituency is and how difficult it is to hold it together. Mm. And if I was going to say anything about contemporary politics here in the UK, I actually think Brexit is a symptom of that um, and it's, you know, I know it's fashionable in UK politics to say, oh, Brexit has caused X, Y and Z. Uh, when I look at, and, and of course it's caused a whole series of ructions in public policy and in political debate, but I actually think Brexit is a symptom of that split constituency underlying malaise for the Tories and Labor still trying to serve diverse constituencies too. Mm. And what, what's Brexit done to our kind of standing in, in, in the world, do you think? I mean, if you're an Australian policymaker now, where does the UK fit in terms of your significant partnerships and relationships? I mean, is America still number one? Is China the most important? Is Japan? Is New Zealand? Where, where, where are we in, in the whole gamut? I mean, as Australian Prime Minister, I mean, the two giants that you wake up worrying about every morning, you know, is uh, the US and, of course, China uh, living where we live. Uh, that's the strategic politics that we have to think about every day. Uh, and so we watch China very closely. We watch the US very closely. I think Australians have always had a sense of connection to the UK um, in its own right rather than mediated uh, through the European Union uh, because of history and, you know, the Queen, our King, continuing to be our head of state, our understanding of our past of uh, colonisation and what that has done to Indigenous Australians, the dispossession, the intergenerational trauma and the things that need to be done to address that. I mean, you know, Britain figures large in our history and so I think it still figures larger in the imagination of Australians than it would if it was just a miscellaneous country of this economic size. Mm. But, but Europe now, would you say that Britain in or out of Europe has changed that perception? Oh, look, from the point of view of the average person, I don't think it's changed that perception mm. at all. Uh, from the point of view of the political class, I mean, obviously, you know, you come to different trade arrangements because you're out of Europe, so there's been the trade agreement. Um, you know, we would watch uh, the dynamics between the UK and the US and there's the new and awkwardly named AUKUS mm. alliance, uh, Australia, the US and the UK, uh, we'd, we'd look at all of that. But, you know, I don't think in a general sense that it's you know, radically changed perceptions of the UK. Mm. Now, of course, you, are, you were born in the UK. You were born in Wales, in Barrie. 
you were ill as a child. You had bronchopneumonia and your parents thought maybe warmer climes might be better for you. Uh, and you actually, I think, am I right, you had dual citizenship up until you became a member of parliament when you had to give up the British citizenship? Uh, yes, that's right. To be eligible to run for Australian Parliament, you have to renounce uh, the rights and entitlements of any other citizenship uh, that you hold or could conceivably hold. So it's quite a complicated rule. Um, and I certainly gave up my uh, UK citizenship in the run up to the first election that I stood for, which was when I stood for the Senate in 1996 and I wasn't elected. Um, I should just say on behalf of Wales, because I get charged by the Welsh Tourism Board. Um, it, it wasn't the only reason we migrated. My father rightly saw better economic opportunities in Australia for us, and Wales is a wonderful place to visit. No one should be deterred uh, based on the weather. Did you have a Welsh, when you left uh, Wales, aged what, eight? Were you eight? Oh, no, no, I was only four, turning five. Yeah, I was four, turning five, so I don't have any original memories of Wales. But did you have a Welsh accent? I presume so, but, yeah, I mean, I must have, <laughs> uh, but it's long, long gone. <laughs> but, and and do, you, do you feel do you feel 100% Australian? Oh, yeah, yes, yeah. absolutely. I mean, you know... Tales of Wales were told in our family home. I mean, my sister and I always knew where we came from. We always knew we'd migrated. You know, my family stories, my mum's stories of growing up in Barrie. I mean, both of them were children during World War Two. So they World World War Two stories. My dad grew up in a coal mining village. I mean, you know, all of this was the backdrop to our family life. You know, Dylan Thomas, the whole nine yards. Uh, but our lived experience was always. Australian. And what about Welsh politics and how, and how, how political were your parents? My father was very politically interested. Um, he followed politics in Australia very, very closely. Uh, he was a strong Labor man, a strong trade unionist. Uh, when we migrated to Australia, he ultimately studied to become a psychiatric nurse and he ended up with an elected, not one of the paid, but an elected position in the trade union that covered psychiatric nurses. He would work shifts and and when he was home during the daytime, he'd listen to question time on the radio. He'd be interjecting as if he was on the floor of the parliament. So that was definitely the, the you know, tenor of our family home. You know, dad would talk to us about politics. He thought it was important that we understood the world, my sister and I. And I certainly remember very clearly, even though I was only in second year high school, the dismissal of the Whitlam government because of how outraged my father was uh, that a Labor government would be dismissed by the Governor-General. And he mm. actually uh, took me to one of the rallies to protest against that dismissal. So, yes, we grew up in a you know, political household in that sense, not in the anybody was, you know, hugely active in politics or wanting to run for politics or anything like that, but in the sense that issues were discussed. And also you, you, you've described yourself in your autobiography as a very shy child and, you know, shyness doesn't always go with top political office, I think it's fair to say, but you've also talked about the importance that your confidence grew when you were doing high school debating. And I'm, I'm actually in the middle of writing a book about trying to get young people more interested in politics. And one of the things I think we've lost is that sense of the importance of learning how to debate. And of course, the private schools do it. Um, but I think in state schools, we should maybe do a focus a bit more on debating. So is that right, that debating in school kind of gave you a sense, both of your political passion, but also gave you confidence? Yes, it is true. I mean, it started off as a lark, really. Uh, two great friends of mine uh, in school were twin girls, Lynn and Kathy Polofsky. Uh, Lynn, sadly, is no longer with us, but Kathy actually lives here in the UK and is still a friend of mine. And it just started off as this lark that we were going to do high school debating in our government school, which did offer it. And then one of the first, you know, propositions we had to argue, this all-girl team, was in favour of the proposition that the man should lead. So that did 
did kind of test us. Uh, and, you know, it gave me more of a sense that you could, you know, argue things out. As much as the actual practice of debating, though, there was a, an immersion for me across all of these years and during the debating days into the Polofsky family. And um, Kathy and Lynn's mum, Marlene Polofsky, used to talk to me about ambitions in life. At that stage, I was saying I wanted to be a teacher and she was, no, 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 you've got to aim for law. You'd be a great lawyer. You're a good debater. And so all of that helped, I think, open my eyes to more possibilities about my life. Um, you know, politics, I think, attracts natural extroverts, but it also attracts people like me who aren't natural extroverts who, you know, I best refresh uh, in my own company, pottering around by myself, uh, but I can, you know, go out into the world and uh, glad, glad hand and speak and campaign and all the rest of it. I mean, these are skills that you can learn, uh, but there are some politicians for whom the energy of the crowd is absolutely their oxygen. Bob Hawke was like that. Uh, so you can come in all sorts of shapes and sizes and still end up in politics and hopefully do all right at it. I think you did. Well, we're going to take a quick break and then come back and talk about, I wonder whether you're sick and tired of talking about it yet, but we're going to talk about that speech. Very happy to. <laughs> Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Yeah. You know you need protein to fuel results, but it's not easy when you're drinking the same bland chalky shake every day. Stop punishing yourself and get to GNC for the best protein in the game, including all the hottest brands and crave-worthy flavors that'll keep you coming back for more. We're talking protein that legit tastes like cookies. You're favorite cereals, indulgent desserts, and more. So bust out of your protein rut and actually look forward to those shakes with unbeatable protein at unbeatable prices. Fuel your fitness with protein at GNC. Going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com slash running. New Balance. Run your way. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Right, welcome back to this special episode of The Rest is Politics. Uh, I'm talking to Julia Gillard while Rory Stewart is wandering around Kenya with his children and lots of lions and tigers and elephants. We talked there about how you, you became prime minister and you lacked confidence as a child, but you developed that. And, you you know, it's quite a thing to become prime minister. You were the first woman deputy prime minister. You were the first woman prime minister in a country that does have a reputation, whether you like it or not, for being a bit sexist and a bit racist and, and all that stuff. Now, as you know, I love Australia um, and I love going to Australia, but it does have that reputation. And you challenged that in your famous misogyny speech 10 years ago now, and it was a brilliant piece of parliamentary theatre. Um, but just talk me through that day, what happened and how you feel about it now. I'm happy to talk about that. I think I just need to explain one thing about the Australian Parliament so it all makes sense. 
which is we don't have your, you know, very what we would refer to as part-time approach to question time, uh, where the Prime Minister only goes occasionally for Prime Ministerial questions. Uh, we have question time every day. The Australian Parliament sits between 2 and 3.30. The Prime Minister is in question time every day. You honestly have to be overseas at the world's most important meeting or in a hospital bed uh, to get out of question time. You have to go. Uh, and, you know, frequently it is the Prime Minister that takes the vast majority of the questions. Uh, so on this parliamentary day, I was doing what I did every parliamentary day. I was getting ready for question time. And your staff obviously work with you and your colleagues that do the sort of tactical management of the chamber to work out what are the things you're most likely to get asked that day. And they're normally the big things running in the media. And the big thing running in the media that day was that the speaker that we had supported to be Speaker of the House of Representatives had been unmasked as having sent some very sexist text messages. And so it was sort of inevitable that he was going to have to go as Speaker and manage his resignation. But I knew as I got ready for question time that what the opposition would be trying to do was skewer me as somehow facilitating sexism because I'd supported this guy to be Speaker, even though I could not have known about the text messages when I did that, but never let a time sequence get in the way of a good parliamentary tactic. Um, and so I was ready for question time. I asked my staff to get together Tony Abbott's top 10 sexist quotes. I've subsequently joked uh, they did that in record time. It was not a hard <laughs> job. I'd asked them to do much more difficult things over the years. And I walked in ready to go for that. But Tony Abbott jumped to his feet and moved a motion. So he voided basically question time and tried to push us onto a motion. And so the speech that's come to be known as the misogyny speech is my speech in reply to his opening speech. And I jotted down some handwritten notes and then jumped up and did it. I will not be lectured about sexism and misogyny by this man. I will not. The Leader of the Opposition says that people who hold sexist views and who are misogynists are not appropriate for high office. Well, I hope the Leader of the Opposition has got a piece of paper and he is writing out his resignation. Because if he wants to know what misogyny looks like in modern Australia, he doesn't need a motion in the House of Representatives. He needs a mirror. That's what he needs. Misogyny, sexism, every day from this Leader of the Opposition. Every day, in every way, across the time the Leader of the Opposition has sat in that chair and I've sat in this chair, that is all we have heard from him. You know, what resonates in the speech now is mostly people aren't interested in that Australian parliamentary context that's sort of fallen away. I think it's come to be something that women in particular who still go out and navigate a sexist world when they've hit a gendered moment and they think, oh, I really should have said X. Why is the best retort in the world come to me at 3 a.m. the next morning? Uh, they sort of watch that speech because it helps ease that frustration because it was a moment when a woman called it out. Mm. So I didn't know I was going to give that speech until I was giving it. Looking back now, I mean, you and I know that one of the fascinating things about politics is you never get to run the control test. So you can theorise about what could have been different, but you'll never quite know. Now I actually wonder whether I would have been better off to call out the sexism early in my time in office and try to provoke a national debate on it and perhaps disarm it a bit when days for the government were easy. I didn't do that. I thought the sexism was a short-term phenomenon. It would fall away the longer I governed. But what actually happened is the longer we governed, the more controversial the policies we were dealing with, the more gendered the discourse became and the harder it was to call it out because if you're in political trouble and then you point to a sexist thing, people say, oh, well, she would be saying that, wouldn't she? She's just mm. trying to distract from the fact that she's in the political horrors. Um, so, you know, it's it's really hard to know. I think, you know, I'm, I'm pleased I gave that speech. Um, in contemporary Australian politics, it did start a debate. It probably did cement the attitudes of 
some. The fashionable analysis of the Australian media was that it was pretty much a bad mistake. Uh, but, you know, here we are 10 years later still talking about it. So I'm proud that it's come to mean something for women around the world. Yes, interesting. I read a, I read a very long analysis yesterday on, I think it was on the conversation, the Australian version of the conversation. And it was somebody who went through in real detail the media coverage the day after and the day after and the day after. Overwhelmingly negative. Lots about you just being a whinging woman and trying to turn some, make something out of nothing and all that sort of stuff. So it's interesting how that moment has endured and got both the issue and your reputation to a completely different place to the one that they were trying to give you at the time, which underlines to me the importance of two things. One is that parliamentary moments really can matter. And the second is you got the real sense that that was you not speaking from prepared notes, not saying I'm going to launch a debate, but it came 100% from the heart. And that's why it connected. I think that's right. I mean, I don't think I could give that speech you know, if if back in those days you'd said to me, you know, um, a week and a half from now, let's give a rip-snorting speech on misogyny, I don't think I could have given no. that speech. No. It could only be given in the moment, in the flow, the way it was. Mm. And, you know, I've dedicated a lot of my time since politics to issues around women's leadership. I mean, I, I went into politics a committed feminist. I've come out of politics a committed feminist. I've come out of politics with a few bumps and bruises, a few scars uh, around these issues. And I've wanted to devote some of my life's time now to how can we make it easier for the women who are to come. And that's led me to founding the Global Institute for Women's Leadership here at King's College London. And we have a sister institute at the Australian National University in Canberra. And we're trying to do the deep analytical work about what needs to change to equalise women's chances of coming through for leadership in all walks of life and to equalise the reception of their leadership so it's mm. not viewed through the prism of gender. And what about, you mentioned um, often the, the impact that social media is having upon people's confidence, people's ability to face big challenges. You talked about it at one point being a, a vile sewer. Um, do you think that is putting young women off the idea even of thinking about going into politics? Oh, yes, I certainly think it is. And if we look uh, at the time of the last election here in the UK, you would recall that there were a number of women who pretty unexpectedly, you know, in the sense that it wasn't the natural time in their political career to say, I'm done, I'm out, I'm not recontesting this election. And when you drilled into that, I mean, you know, everybody's reasons for leaving are individual, but a thread that ran through it was uh, the vile nature of social media, but also the fact that these things don't just stay online. I mean, there are plenty of women politicians with stories about seeing a, you know, hideous tweet threatening rape and murder and it's come associated with a photograph of their front door. I mean, it's people saying, we know where you are. And I do think that that weighs very heavily on people's shoulders. Amnesty International does global data sets about all of this uh, and it's, you know, undeniable that of the truly hideous social media posts, they are disproportionately directed at women and they are disproportionately directed at women of colour. Mm. And I just think we'd be kidding ourselves if we said to each other, oh, that would have no effect. I mean, it has to have an impact on people and on their families and on their preparedness to continue. And it has to send a message to young women. And so I think we've got to be you know, in some ways counteracting that message, not by shielding that truth. I think we have to face that truth, but we've also got to be talking to young women about how we're working to make this a less gendered environment and the great merits of going into politics. I mean, I'm often asked, you know, given how gendered it was, would you do it all again? And my answer is yes, in a heartbeat, absolutely, uh, because the 
things it enables you to do which make a difference for your community, your country, the world you live in. You know, politics is not the only pathway to be a change maker, but it's an incredibly empowered mm. pathway. So I'm always, you know, if you've got the passion, you've got the sense of purpose, please get in there. But at the same time, you perhaps understand why some young women say, no, I'm not going to do change that way. I'm going to do it another way because I can't take the abuse and the vile hatred and the misogyny. Yeah, I understand, but I am also prepared to challenge a little bit. Um, mm. I wrote a book on women and leadership with a great friend of mine, Ngozi Okonjiri-Wheeler, who now, of course, is the head of the World Trade Organization, which is a job not for the faint-hearted. Uh, and when we would speak about our book and young women would raise their sense of trepidation, uh, Ngozi would say when she was finance minister of Nigeria, she got to put in place a policy which lifted to two million subsistence farmers, all women, out of poverty. Yeah. And she'd say, who wouldn't want to do that? Like, who yeah. wouldn't want to lift two million women out of poverty? And you, and you couldn't do that just by tweeting about it. You couldn't do that by tweeting you've got, about you've got it. To, you've got to get into power. Now, you, we've talked a little bit about the roughness of, um, of Australian politics. And I don't know if you remember, but it's about, what would it be? When did you leave office? 2013. So how many years? We're talking nine years now. So nine years ago, I was on a trip to Australia. My friend and colleague, John McTernan, was working with you in Canberra. He knew I was in Sydney. He gave me a call. He said, why don't you come down and have a chat with Julia? And I came down. We had a very nice chat in your very nice office in Canberra. And by the time I got to the airport, <laughs> breaking news, Kevin Rudd was forcing what you guys call a spill. And that led to your demise. Now, it was very, very high profile that this was possibly going on. But I don't expect you to remember our, our conversation. But did you know on that morning that that was likely to come that day? Because it was pretty brutal when it came. Uh, yes, I did. No. And Alistair, I think we just need to clarify for listeners, your appearance in Canberra was an unrelated event. <laughs> There is not a causal chain here. Uh, we'll have we'll have uh, people running stories about how you changed the course of Australian politics. Um, so yes, you know, look, I I knew it was coming. I mean, you know, the sort of. Uh, uh, sort of uh, Damocles had been over my head for a while. I mean, I think I outran it for a long time, uh, but I knew that it would likely fall at some point. Uh, and, you know, all you could do in those circumstances is keep, uh, you know, the, the faith that you could with your political colleagues. And I was always as inclusive of, as possible of the team. Uh, but, you know, it's the old Paul Keating line, my great Labor predecessor, not a day to waste. And so you just had to make every day count. Mm. What's your? We mentioned Tony Abbott and his role in your life with that speech, and and as a pretty tough opponent, and Kevin Rudd. What's your relationship with those guys now? Because presumably you ex prime ministers, like we saw our six now eight ex prime ministers or whatever it is. Now we're running out of ex prime ministers, or we're getting too many ex prime ministers in this country. But do you guys ever have to get together for those like big establishment gatherings and the Queen's death, whatever it might be? And I just wonder what your relationship's like when you get together. Yeah, there hasn't been a gathering of all of us, uh, I don't think, uh, since I was actually uh, Prime Minister. Oh, actually, many of them would have been at Bob Hawke's funeral, uh, but I wasn't able to be there, so I did a video message. Uh, so there, there hasn't been, you know, we don't have as much protocol around changes of government and changes of prime minister and stuff like that as you do. So I suspect there aren't as many times in Australia that the call would go out to all of us as the call goes out here. Uh, so no, I mean, I just really don't see um, either Kevin or Tony. I mean, I've, I've joked when I've been asked about this in the past, you know, we don't all go and live in a cubby house together. Uh, we uh, go and get on with our lives. And how would you define that relationship with Kevin? Because it, it struck me as, that if I know you haven't seen it, but the killing season, it was pretty brutal. And I just wonder how you kind of, I suppose we've had similar stuff, but it, it feels more brutal in Australia. And it, and it felt like you were really kind of put through a pretty hard time, having also been part of 
a spill against him, I guess. So do you think there was an element of revenge going on? Or do you think it was actually he had a different view for the, what should happen to the country? Uh, no, I I don't think uh, when you look at that period in Labor politics, I don't think it's defined by uh, different policy choices or different analysis of uh, the needs of the country. It's really defined by leadership styles um, and uh, the way people worked with colleagues, in particular the way I worked with colleagues. I think it's, um, you know, it was the, the team uh, looking at leadership and governing styles rather than big policy questions and seeing differences. So uh, different in many ways to, well, very different, I think, from what you've seen here in recent days where you mm. would say that Liz Truss offered quite a different policy vision of the future from the one that Rishi Sunak put forward. Yeah, uh, for sure. So wasn't that kind of difference. I mean, on on how I feel about it now, I mean, honestly, for me, it's been very important to turn the page. And so, you know, I'm not a continuing commentator in Australia on Australian politics. I, I don't do that. Um, you know, everybody knows I don't do that. The journos don't ring anymore to try and get me to comment on who's up and who's down in Australian politics. I've deliberately turned the page and gone on and done other things that fit with my values. Of course, the Global Institute for Women's Leadership is one of those. The other fantastic opportunity I have here in London is I uh, chair the Board of Governors of the Wellcome Trust, which yeah. is making such a huge difference in our world for science. And part of turning that page means I don't, you know, obsess about who did what to who when. I think mm. it's, you got to just well, it, it is it is what it is and, you know, you just move on and other things, uh, you know, become important to you. You work with other people. So I really don't obsess about it from any dimension. I don't obsess mm. on what could I have done differently and I don't obsess about the role of others in it. Mm. And you, you've mentioned um, the Queen a couple of times and King Charles. Do you, do you think that King Charles will be your last head of state? Your last British head of state, as it were. Do you think you're going to move, ever move to a, a republic? I've always thought that the death of the Queen would lead to a period of reflection in Australia uh, and it would ultimately, and I don't think that this will happen quickly, but it would ultimately lead through that period of reflection uh, into a new energy around a Republican referendum, uh, Australia becoming a republic. And when I've said that in the past, particularly here in the UK, it is quickly misinterpreted as a sort of popularity contest. Oh, well, that means the Queen was really popular and, you know, King Charles isn't popular and that's the difference. I actually don't, it's, it's not, it's not a popularity contest. It's just when, you know, an era has so visibly changed and she was, you know, such an icon. Uh, when an era has so visibly changed, I think people in all sorts of ways um, sit back, reflect, take stock, think about the future. I think it's just a very natural process. Mm. And what will happen in Australia won't be a reflection of do people like Charles and Camilla. It won't be that. It will be do people think the time has come and can there be a consensus on the model that would take us forward? So, you know, I, I would predict we'll, you know, I certainly think I will see this in my lifetime, um, but I'm also not predicting it, you know, tomorrow or the year after. And uh, Prime Minister Albanese has been very clear uh, that it's not, you know, the immediate priority or the work of the government in the short term. Yeah. Now, that's something something in your politics that I wish that we could take into ours. I just wonder if you could give me your assessment of what you think the impact of compulsory voting has been on, on Australian politics, because I wish we had it. Oh, I am a huge advocate of compulsory voting. Uh, so just to be clear uh, with people, what that means is you must be registered to vote. Uh, and if you're not registered and, you know, you get an opportunity to correct if you're not registered, but if you're willfully not registered for a long period of time, you can be fined. Uh, and the Australian Electoral Commission does do recruitment campaigns with, uh, you know, school children and university, um, young people who are 
are coming of age, they're turning 18. They do door knock in high rental districts where people change housing very frequently to make sure people are enrolled. And then at election time, you have to go get your ballot paper. Uh, now, if you want to put it in the ballot box blank, that's up to you. If you want to put a four-letter word which best summarises your view of contemporary Australian politics, that's up to you and numbers of people do take that choice. But overwhelmingly, people vote. And so it means that, you know, your politics ultimately has to be about the mainstream. You know, if Mr, Mrs, Ms, average, um, walking up and down their high streets, to use a British term we wouldn't use in Australia, but to paint the picture here, uh, if Mr, Mrs, Ms, average in their high streets aren't voting for you, then you can't win. Mm. Uh, And it does mean that a lot of the so-called culture war issues, which particularly end up with a lot of purchase in somewhere like the US, um, don't translate strongly into Australian politics because, you know, your average person is pretty sensible about those things and they don't get carried away to extremes. So do you think that's one reason why Scott Morrison lost? Because he did try quite a lot of the culture war stuff. Uh, I think actually um, Scott Morrison... I mean, he was a very sure-footed campaigner in 2019. He increasingly seemed to lose his footing uh, and not show those campaign skills again. Uh, I think the various of the responses to COVID and particularly the emergence from COVID, uh, the slow rollout of the vaccine, uh, all of this came to cost him quite dearly. Um Early in his term in office, he'd he'd said when we had the season of incredibly bad bushfires and he was on holiday in Hawaii, I don't hold a hose mate when challenged about why he hadn't come back to Australia more quickly. And I think that wording came back to haunt him because people saw him as not having his hands on the tiller as strongly as he should uh, when we were trying to come out of the pandemic. I think he did, and some of his team did try and play some culture war issues in to uh, correct uh, their political course. So I think they knew that they had that baggage gathering around them, so they thought they'd try something a bit different, but it didn't work. Cool. Well, listen, it's been lovely talking to you as ever, Julia. Uh, Thank you for all of your time. Thank you. And you you do sort of post-politics politics politics in quite an interesting way now, don't you? You're quite a... I mean, you still, you say you're not a commentator, but you're still involved in an awful lot of what I would define as political issues. Yeah, I try and, um, you know, maybe I've uh, breached some of it in this discussion just because you're drawing me out on it. But, um, you know, what I try and do is I do talk about politics. I'm happy to talk about politics. I mean, politics has been my lifeblood for so much of my adult life. But I try and pull back uh, and look at the, the bigger trends that are shaping things. You know, I'm I certainly never drop into Australian politics now uh, to say Jim Chalmers in his budget definitely (laughs) should do this with tax rates. I never do any of that. I try and pull back to what are the, the, you know, the big tidal movements underneath, not what's the froth and bubble on the surface. And are you following, final question, are you keeping tabs on the Rugby League World Cup and do you imagine, as I do, that Australia are going to win it? (laughs) Uh, It's not my principal code. uh, I know, you're um, you're an AFL person. Yeah, yeah, it's not my principal code, but my uh, dad, uh, being Welsh, obviously did love rugby. So uh, whatever competition Australia's in, I'm obviously barracking for Australia. Good. All right, well, listen, we'll see you again soon, and thanks for all your time. Thank you very much. 